welcome to Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm Mike Allen, here with another story about historically significant people, places, and events from Connecticut's long and fabled past. Today on Amazing Tales, a story that is half fanciful and yet totally factual. It's The Trail of the Whispering Giants, a series of statues, one in every state, honoring Native Americans. These statues, all but one carved from wood, were donated for free by the artist. The problem for Connecticut? You can't see its statue right now. Well, the artist Peter Wolf Toth is here today for a delightful review of his life's work. So now settle in for the story of The Trail of the Whispering Giants. This story begins not in Connecticut, but in Ocean City, Maryland. My wife and I were on vacation in this beautiful seaside resort community. I was driving and she was checking Google for local points of interest. And there it was, an entry that would ultimately lead to this episode. The recommendation was to drive by and see a statue that was said to be part of the Trail of the Whispering Giants. Well, we took the bait and off we drove to South 2nd Street. We were within view of the Atlantic Ocean. It was windy, as is often the case along the coast. The waves were pounding nearby, and suddenly there it was. This gigantic wooden statue had to be at least 30 feet high. And carved into this 100-year-old piece of old oak wood was the face of a Native American with tears streaming down his right cheek. There was a plaque. It told of the Assateague Indian tribe, which had been pressured north out of Delaware by colonists. They migrated through Pennsylvania, New York, and Canada, and finally the tribe was lost to history. The plaque also listed the name Peter Toth. It said he was making statues for each of the 50 states, and like this one, he was giving it to the people of each state to pay homage to the heritage and raise the nation's consciousness as to the plight of the Native Americans. Well, this was a no-brainer. We'd head back after vacation and find the one he donated in Connecticut. And that's when the mystery began. I couldn't find the Connecticut edition of the statue. There was scant information online, and after quite a bit of digging, I found only a few clues. It was a 43rd statue, if you're looking at it in terms of which order it was built in. It was created and donated by Peter Toth. It was in disrepair and in storage, and it was waiting for a donor to help with restoration. Also, it was one of 12 statues that are currently listed officially as missing, at least on this website. Well, finally, I found a site that had a picture of it. It was laying on what I can best describe as a very large wooden cradle wrapped in a sky-blue plastic tarp. It said the statue was at the Old Mystic Village in Mystic, Connecticut. It listed the name Jerry Olson, his phone number, and a note that said if you give him a call, he'll unwrap it so you can see it. So I called Jerry at the number given. I got an answering machine for Old Mystic Village, and my message went unanswered. I tried unsuccessfully to reach the administrator of the website. I looked into the history of Old Mystic Village, something I had heard of years ago but never visited. It's a series of commercial stores designed to look like an old New England village. It is not, as I had thought, the historic section of the Village of Mystic. Well, it turns out Jerry Olson was the son of a man who first developed the village, and he had been associated with it managing the properties. His twin sister, Joyce Olson Reznikoff, was managing the operation. Well, I called the number again, and this time a woman answered, and it was Joyce. 
I asked if Jerry was around, but was informed that he had passed away three years ago. She said she had never heard of the statue and was shocked to hear that Jerry's name and her business's phone number was listed online with a photo of the statue. I thanked her for her time. I went back to my old journalism days and did some old-fashioned investigating. What I learned was that the statue had been on display out front of the Groton Public Library. The library director, Jennifer Mealy, sent me some helpful background information as well as a picture postcard of when the statue was in place. The core of the statue had started to rot, apparently a combination of water penetration and insects. They were afraid it might fall on a patron, so the statue was taken down and placed in storage at the Groton Public Works Department garage. Well, Public Works eventually said they couldn't hang on to it forever, and so the town manager made arrangements to have it stored by Jerry Olson in the maintenance garage at Old Mystic Village. The town had consulted some specialists in wood restoration and preservation, but the statue was never repaired. It went into storage, hoping for repairs to return it to its early glory. Well, I tracked down all of the principals, two former town managers who had knowledge of the statue and its whereabouts, and the public works director at the time. I confirmed that the last anyone knew it was in Jerry Olson's maintenance garage and storage. I also learned that Joyce Resnikoff's son was now managing the property. So I phoned Joyce back one last time, told her what I had learned, and asked if she could put me in touch with her son, Chris Regan. Turns out he was standing right there and she handed the phone to him. Chris confirmed that the statue is there. I told him that I had been in touch with the original artist, and he agreed to have a call with Peter Toth to discuss restoration, saying he'd like to see it back in place since it had once been such a big part of the community. I'm arranging that call, and I'll do a separate episode if and when there's progress on restoring the statue. In the meantime, the artist, Peter Toth, told me the background about how the statue came to be in Connecticut, and more importantly, about his incredible project overall. Peter Wolf Toth is an artist, an incredible artist, and not only has he created and donated a total of 74 statues as part of his Trail of the Whispering Giants, but he's exceptionally talented in multiple artistic media, including stone, wood carving, and painting, and more. The number of 74 represents the fact that there are statues in each of the 50 states. Some have more than one. Canada, Germany, Austria, and his birth country of Hungary also have them. All were donated with no profit made by Peter. I tracked him down at his museum-slash-art studio in Florida, He's currently 74 years old, but is still working on his mission, which is to pay homage to those who have been wronged in life. What I do is I honor people facing injustice. One of my first questions was, why did you do this? What led you to wanting to pay homage to Native Americans in such a big way? The Russian communists stole my father's possessions, his land, and our family, they became refugees. So I had the privilege of understanding what it feels like to lose one's land. His family has lived in several countries, meaning Peter is indeed a citizen of the world. His main roots are the United States, where he grew up around Akron, Ohio. Peter had made some money working at a machine shop there. He left the University of Akron to do some traveling, stopping first in La Jolla, California, where most of his family had moved. 
That's where the Trail of the Whispering Giants began back in 1971. The very first statue was carved in stone looking out over the sea. I love the ocean. Uh, I, I obviously uh, creating my very first statue uh, in California overlooking the Pacific Ocean. Indeed, many of the statues are located near the ocean, including the one my wife and I saw in Maryland. The statue in Groton's in a seaside town, but the statue itself was located two miles inland at the public library. Well, Peter returned to Akron from La Jolla and wanted to sculpt another stone statue in his hometown. However, he says that flat Ohio doesn't have a lot of cliffs, like he found along the California coast. I finally found one. It was a, a stone quarry. <laughs> a few raccoons and maybe a, a possum might have seen my statue. Then he went walking through a park with his girlfriend one day and he came across a dead elm tree. Well, he realized he could use that for his statues. What I do is I take what used to be at one time a living tree. So I intertwine the spirit of the Indian with the spirit of the wood, the living wood. Well, that elm tree turned into his first wooden statue. A newspaper from Cleveland came to do a feature story on him, and that propelled Peter and brought him considerable attention and requests. A call came in from Pennsylvania, where he made his second wooden statue. Then Dunkirk, New York, a statue that recently underwent some rehabilitation. And the trail was, as you say, underway. When you're donating one of your works, in particular for a cause, there are, uh, as you might guess, there are people that love Indians. Peter had to deal with commentaries on his work that didn't always sit too well with him. First and foremost, he says, he does not make totem poles. Anybody who's ever seen his statues would realize that they are not traditional totem poles, yet some people continue to characterize them that way. Instead, he studies the facial features of the Native American people living in a particular state and then makes a statue honoring them. Sometimes he says that's easier said than done. In the case of like Oklahoma, there's over 50 Indian tribes there. So I do a, more or less a composite of all the indigenous people. And sometimes that brings a result that isn't pleasing to everybody. That's what a public art is. It's, it's something that some people love and some people hate. That's okay. Another comment that makes him bristle is when he's compared to artists who work with chainsaws, a form of art known as chainsaw arts. Now, I have nothing against power tools. I can cut a log in two with the best of them. <laughs> but uh, my work is still not a chain, not chainsaw art. Not that he's focused on money. After all, he's donated his 74 statues at no cost to the states or localities where they're based at no profit. But he does say that chainsaw artists get about $50 a foot for their work. His statues have been assessed at upwards of $3 million. As he points out, he's not trying to boast, rather just to make the distinction about the type of work he does using fairly old-fashioned tools and techniques. I do uh, most of my art somewhat similar fashion and with similar tools as uh, artists use. 2,000 years ago. Peter is an original. Consider the fact that he's built wooden statues, each 20 to 30 feet tall, in climates as different as Alaska's tundra, Arizona's desert, Florida's tropical extremes, and along the shores of mighty oceans. Of course, everything in between. 
There simply is nothing else quite like it. He started his first statue in 1971, and his 74th was completed in 1988 when his project in Hawaii was finished. Most of the statues are prominently displayed in front of such public gathering spots as museums, libraries, or courthouses. His pace of work is nothing short of incredible, Consider that he built 74 statues in just 17 years. On average, that's more than four per year. He says each one individually takes two to six months to complete, depending on multiple factors. And Peter's becoming a leading expert in such things as wood preservation and the types of wood that can stand up to conditions in different climates. Peter has an unusual connection to another major project that pays homage to Native Americans, and he calls himself quite possibly the last living link to the creation of Mount Rushmore. Peter knew the lead architect on the Crazy Horse Monument in South Dakota. He was an artist named Korzak Zulowski. The Crazy Horse Monument features the image of the famous North American chief carved into a huge rock cliff in the Black Hills of South Dakota. Now, as the crow flies, it's just nine miles from famous Mount Rushmore, where four American presidents are similarly carved into the stone cliff there. Both of these pieces of art were constructed in the early 1900s. Mount Rushmore started first, and it was created by the famous sculptor Gutzon Borglum. Peter says that he met Korzak and had dinner with him, and they discussed their mutual work of carving sculptures of Native Americans. Korzak told Peter a story from the days when he was young. He was working as an employee at Borglum's work at Mount Rushmore. When he worked at Mount Rushmore with Borglum, told me that Borglum had a son named Lincoln. He said, Lincoln and I, we didn't see eye to eye. He said, and I quote, I knocked a bastard on his ass. The old man fired me from the job. That's when I started If you go to Mount Rushmore, you'll find yourself inside the Lincoln Borglum Visitor Center. After he was fired, Peter says that a medicine man for the local tribe, Ben Black Elk, asked Korzak if he would carve a tribute to Crazy Horse not far away from Mount Rushmore. And that's how that project came to be. Well, Peter says he's not finished yet with his mission. Just because I'm old does mean I'm going to just go away. He works out of his art studio and museum in Florida. Like Peter himself, it's a little bit non-traditional. I have a, a, a rambling, uh, crazy museum. This place is, if you can imagine, half an acre. You know, I have probably about over 5,000 sculptures and paintings scattered about. And it looks like it was hit by a hurricane. He stopped letting people in without an appointment. He's had to deal with thieves walking in and walking out with some of his art pieces. A short time ago, a woman Peter describes as a dignified older woman, probably in her 70s, stepped right over his sign that said, keep out, thieves will go to jail, and made her way into his studio. She stepped right over it, walked right in, grabbed one of my my wood pieces. I said, excuse me, what are you doing? I like this piece. I want to buy it. I said, I'm sorry, you know. It's not for sale, first off. Second, didn't you see that sign that says keep out? Just says, yeah, it says for thieves. I'm not a thief. When he's not tending to his art, he's gardening or dealing with his chickens, something I learned during our interview. Let me just... My, my rooster wants to uh, uh, get his two cents in worth. 
Sorry. He still receives a large number of visitors, and he fields questions from them. For example, what type of commission do you get for your work? I donate my work. I donated a statue. My work is called a mission. Not a commission, but a mission. See, that, that's, that's what I do. Once he was rehabbing a statue that he had started 30 years ago to bring it back into pristine shape. Somebody walked by and asked him about the time it took him to complete the statue. He joked, well, I've been working on this one for 30 years, but I think that places me in the same category as the great Leonardo da Vinci. According to what I was told, it took him over 40 years to finish the painting of Mona Lisa. I told him it, it only took me 30 years, so I'm, I'm a lot faster than uh, da Vinci. Sometimes he says he'll hear from someone who says his wooden statues are looking a little haggard. He has a standard reply. How good would you be looking if you'd be standing out there in the weather, in the storms, along the, the Atlantic coast for 40 years? And that brings us full circle back to Connecticut, where the statue that's in storage in Mystic is also in need of some tender loving care. Going back in time, Peter says he recalls that he was in Rhode Island when he was first contacted about the possibility of coming to Connecticut. I had some very uh, influential people there that wanted to bring my whispering giant to Connecticut, to uh, uh, Groton in particular. It seems that the U.S. Navy, which has a huge presence in southeastern Connecticut, had fished out a giant Douglas fir from Long Island Sound. Someone came up with my name and said, hey, Peter, have you got a big Douglas fir? Uh, would you like to make us a statue? And, of course, Peter jumped on that. Well, now the combination of moisture creating fungus and insects nibbling away has created some decay, and it's set in. It needs to be removed to restore the statue to prominence. Peter says that should be doable. You have to take out the back, take out all the decay, and put a most of the time, I'd like to put a telephone pole in there and reinforce it in that manner. He says the refurbished statue should probably have a cap installed over it in order to protect it from excess moisture and extend its longevity. There are millions of people aware of my statues, my whispering giants. It could be a major asset to them. Again, I'll be arranging a call between Peter and Chris Regan, who currently has possession of the Connecticut statue and is keeping it from slipping into worse shape. Stay tuned for updates on that. And stay tuned for the next chapter in Peter Toast's life. His 75th statue? Well, it's planned for the banks of the Amazon River as a tribute to the indigenous people in Brazil. He's written to the local tribe chief, Chief Batista, and wants to build a statue of a giant angel. The angel would represent the fact that the Amazon forest gives us the air we need to breathe by purifying oxygen. It would also pay tribute to the local tribe, continuing Peter's lifelong mission of paying homage to those who face injustice. That's it for this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. I want to thank my guest for this episode, Peter Wolf Toth, the amazing artist behind the Trail of the Whispering Giants. 
Please follow me on my main podcast website, amazingtalesct.podbean.com. Also, in between episodes, you can check out my pages on Facebook at Amazing Tales CT. That's where I have a bunch of photos showing you some of Peter's work. Plus, I'd love to hear from you, and you can always send me an idea for a story you'd like me to look into. If you liked what you heard, spread the word to your family and friends. See you next time here on Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path. I'm Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. Thank you.